Listeners, I'm afraid I must inform you of an extremely unfortunate event. Several of them, in fact. So many that we've decided to create a podcast to chronicle them all. But if you're interested in well-produced podcasts with celebrity guests, you would be better off listening to something else. There will be no famous people on this show, and only the cheapest editing software will be used. There won't even be a Squarespace ad. For those of you brave enough to stay, welcome to our perilous podcast discussing a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. Welcome to Not So Young Adults, where two former teens try to recapture the glory days of their youth by discussing their favorite YA books and figure out what makes them timeless. That's right. I'm Spencer, and as always, I am joined by my lovely co-host and resident librarian in training, Jess. It's me. Wow. It's you. It's us. We're We're doing a podcast. (laughs) I'm so excited because I get to speak again. You know how I don't talk to people outside of pre-recorded interactions like this. (laughs) So it's really fun that we're we're getting to talk again. It's been very limiting for you. It's been difficult, especially (laughs) we're trying to find a new apartment, and it it would help a lot if I could just talk. (laughs) But I can't. Wow. So welcome, everyone, as we begin this new journey. Through the genre of YA. Of YA. Although, I mean, caveat, um, I do want to say uh, YA typically is like ninth to 12th grade. But I think yes. in, in this instance, we're including like ages 13 up. Yeah. So we're not limiting ourselves to just the YA section in the bookstore. We're going to throw in some of those books that might be in the children's section at the bookstore. Right. Mostly yes. this one. Probably not Harry Potter. Because I think there's enough Harry Potter podcasts. If you guys want to hear a Harry Potter podcast, just Google it. There's all there's kinds of them. so many, and they're all pretty good. I mean, there's a lot that are good. Right. And so some of you guys probably recognize us or have followed us on our previous podcast, Twilight, a literary podcast. Where we and talked about everything Twilight. Everything Twilight. And, well, things are going to be kind of mostly the same on this one, structurally. Correct. So if you aren't familiar somehow with our previous work... Basically, what we do is we break down what happened in the book that we were covering or the chapters if we are going to split it up as such. And I come in and I give some pretentious knowledge about the details of the book and how it works and what makes it so juicy and good and why you should appreciate it and why you should be crying every time you read. And then I come in a little bit brighter. A little brighter. Um, sometimes. Depends. Yeah, less homeworky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll just give you some like general information that I found. And Jess is also going to be more... He, she's, let's just say she's more tapped in with what the kids are reading these days. Or yeah. the teens or 20-year-olds living at home are reading these days. So she, Jess is going to be kind of our dispenser of news and anything big and trends going on in the YA while I sit back and I just keep reading The Great Gatsby over and over until I just memorize the whole thing and then I don't have to read it anymore. I can just think it. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. We're, we're doing, guys, a series of unfortunate events, if you didn't already know that. 
Uh, and we're not talking about the Trump administration. Ha <laughs> um, No, but I've actually never read this series, which That's is pretty awesome. wild, It's kind right? of a flip of last time because I read the series as a kid, absolutely obsessed with it. And you're a big newbie. Although I will say, having going back and reading it again, I don't remember a lot of what happened. Excellent. So it's going to be exciting for both of us. So we're going to be learning along the way with you guys. We're... Not necessarily avoiding spoilers, but I don't think we're going to be having a lot of spoilers. I'll be honest right now, I don't remember how this story ends. Yeah, and I did watch the movie with Jim Carrey, and so, so I sorry. kind of understand what happens plot-wise for the first three books. Right. But beyond that, I'm completely clueless. Well, some of our audience may also be a bit clueless about a series of unfortunate events, so we'll get you guys a bit of some background information about the series as a whole. So, A Series of Unfortunate Events is a series of 13 children's novels following the tragic story of the three Baudelaire siblings. Since the release of the first book, A Bad Beginning, in 1999, the series has gone on to sell over 60 million copies and be adapted into, unfortunately, a movie, but also a pretty decent video game and, most recently, a hit Netflix series. Authored by Daniel Hadler under the name Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events is defined by its gothic aesthetic and its absurdist writing style, which have made it one of the most unique and beloved stories in all of children's literature. All right. That's right. Let's get started by doing a quick refresh on what happened in today's chapters. Which was all the the chapters in the book. All the chapters in book one. Which, fun enough, 13 chapters in total. That is fun. Isn't that fun? That's very fun. Isn't that fun, everyone? At home, I I want you to say out loud, no matter where you are right now, that's fun. That's so fun. Thank you. So our tragic tale begins with three children standing on a gloomy, deserted beach. My favorite kind of beach. I mean, same. They are the Baudelaire children. Violet, the eldest, is 14 and has a knack for inventions. Klaus is 12 and is a voracious reader with an almost photographic memory. I don't know why I said photographic like that. And finally, Sonny, an infant with a penchant for biting and a limited vocabulary that is only understandable to her siblings. The children's day at the beach is interrupted when they notice a mysterious figure approaching in the distance. The children soon realize that that man is actually Mr. Poe, a banker and friend of their parents who suffers from a perpetual cough. I cannot stand this man. Uh, yeah, more like Mr. Povid. <laughs> right, right? Yeah, no, because he literally can't like take a single breath that isn't like coughing or sneezing. It's quite embarrassing. Yeah, he is the single most frustrating character in this whole series, which is an achievement. Right, because he's not even the big bad. He's not even the small bad. Well, he's kind of the small <laughs> he's bad. He's kind of the small he bad. He kind of represents the kind of general bad in the world, but we'll get into that. Yeah. Mr. Bogue comes bearing horrific news. I believe it's Mr. Poe. <laughs> Mr. Poe comes bearing horrific news the Baudelaire's parents have died in a fire which has also completely destroyed their home Mr. Poe quickly arranges for the orphans to live with their next closest relative the mysterious Count Olaf thunder crash evil sounds spooky a man they had never heard of before Only a few days after their parents' death, the Baudelaire's arrive at their new home, a dilapidated, soot-colored house featuring a rickety tower in the back and a giant eye carved into the front door. Which, mm, that's my aesthetic. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, after the day of apartment hunting we've been on, that sounds lovely. I would scoop that place up in a second. Love a nice, dilapidated place. As long as it looks spooky, you know? I, I mean, soot's one of my favorite colors. But... 
as bad as the house was, its owner was somehow even worse. Greeting them at the door was a tall, slim man with a gaunt face topped by a single long eyebrow and two bright, rapacious eyes. Though they didn't know it at the time, the Baudelaire's were staring into the face that would haunt them for the rest of their lives. As you might expect, life only gets worse for the children inside the house. Count Olaf quickly sets the children to daily, nearly impossible chores, while providing them only one small bed to share and a minimal amount of what could technically be defined as food. The only bright side was that they very rarely saw their new guardian, as he spent most of his day out of the house or up in his tower, where the children were strictly forbidden to enter. One day, the children are left with a small amount of money and a note instructing them to prepare a dinner for his theater troupe that night. Of course, being literal children, the orphans haven't the faintest idea of how to prepare a meal or gather the ingredients for said meal. Fortunately, the Baudelaire's are able to procure a cookbook from their kind neighbor, Justice Strauss, Mm. who even offers to drive them down to the market to buy ingredients. Despite the meager allowance Olaf provides, the orphans manage to put together a half-decent pasta dish. However, Olaf is displeased with the meal, having expected them to make roast beef. Olaf begins to threaten the children, but is interrupted by the arrival of his theater troupe. So I want to stop and take a second to talk about the theater troupe because they are a fascinating group of characters. Yeah. They're like this cast of evil carnival freak show like they're the most i just love them i'm obsessed with them they're like my favorite part of this whole story it's like very good descriptions too yeah and they're so iconic they're so dynamic and they're so memorable thank god they didn't end up being like problematic right so far the book has not been problematic which i keep waiting for and i'm yeah. worried about yeah but we have two women who's are i think supposed to be twins are they supposed to be twins? I'm not sure. I don't know. But they have faces covered in bright white makeup, almost like kabuki theater make- makeup. But it gives them the appearance of being like ghosts. And then there's the long-armed man with hooks for hands, which is both <laughs> hands are hooks. Just great. <laughs> there's and there's one of my favorite moments is that he they describe him like shaking his hook at one of the children at one point. Like he's wagging his finger, which just cracks me up. Oh, uh... And then there's the extremely fat person who somehow looks neither like a man nor a woman. Yikes. It's great. And then the most frightening of all, a bald man with a long nose. Oh, Oh, Bald. Terrifying. The horror. But together they form this like menacing group that is menacing as they are baffling to look at. And I just, I love them so much and I wanted to like stop and just shout them out because they're just great. And they keep reappearing in the story and I love it every time. Yeah, I do. I, I really like this. The orphans serve dinner to the group, but the meal does little to dull Olaf's anger, and the evening ends with Olaf slapping Klaus across the face. Yeah, this is, like, so much more brutal than I remembered it as a kid. Like, he physically harms these kids. Like, I don't remember that part, and, like, I probably didn't think much of it as a kid, but, like, that's so horrifying to think of in a children's book. Yeah, no, it's rough. That night, the children also learn of Olaf's intention to obtain the fortune left by the children's parents, which they are unable to use until Violet comes of age. The next morning, the children visit Mr. Poe, but he's far too busy with important bank things. Yeah, and uh, there's this great part where Mr. Poe's like talking down to him, and they're like, he, he's making us do all this manual labor. They have to build a deck on yeah. their own with like supplies they find or like repair windows and like these crazy things and they're supposed like well i'm sorry your parents didn't like make you do chores in their house but you know other people have different 
ways of parenting and blah 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 it's just the most frustrating thing and lemony snicket just nails this feeling of helplessness as a kid yeah because i think when we're kids you kind of have this assumption that adults just aren't paying attention and they don't realize when things are going wrong like I had like this reoccurring nightmare as a kid where a meteor or like a, like a big but natural calamity was coming, but you had to leave. And I just had this fear that my parents weren't going to leave. Like they're like, no, it'll be fine. We'll stay. And like that they wouldn't get us away from it for some reason. And it's just that feeling of like the adults don't get it and they're not looking out for you. And like you feel smarter than them. Like you feel like you really understand. And Snicket yeah. just does that so well. And it's so fun to read as a kid because you kind of kind of think that secretly to yourself yeah I agree I definitely remember feeling that sort of frustration and it makes me very angry today to yes. read that I was like I've literally oh, oh yeah. you know while reading it so the children come downstairs the next morning to find something truly unnerving Count Olaf waiting for them with three steaming bowls of oatmeal topped with fresh raspberries. Genuinely frightening when yeah. Olaf's preparing you food. Yeah. After proving that he was not poisoning the children, Olaf tells the orphans that Mr. Poe had informed him about their visit to the bank. But instead of being angry, Olaf tells the children that he wants them to feel more at home by having them join him in his latest theatrical pr- his latest theatrical production, The Marvelous Marriage. In fact, he has picked Violet to play the bride to Olaf's character. Gross. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is gross. Um, Not great. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later. The Baudelaire's knew Olaf was up to something, and they knew that the play was somehow a scheme to get his hands on their inheritance, but for the life of them, they couldn't figure out how. So the children went to visit Justice Strauss to see if she had any books on inheritance law. Another great thing I love about this is that throughout the series, Snicket makes it clear that being clever, thinking, and reading, and gaining knowledge is the key to overcoming adversity. And Uh that's such a... But he does it subtly enough that it's not preachy, and I love it, and books will solve all your problems, but not really, but they'll make you feel better. Right. (laughs) <laughs> Fortunately for the children, Strauss was a licensed judge and had plenty of boring law books. In fact, Olaf asked Strauss to play the officiant in his marriage play in order to make the play, quote unquote, feel more realistic. How fun. How fun. The whole neighborhood's coming. Yeah, what a coming. great idea. Wow, what a great idea. Eventually, Klaus figure out, figures out Olaf's plan. He was going to inherit their fortune by actually marrying Violet on stage. Gross. Gross. Which would allow him to access her finances. Klaus confronts Olaf the next morning with this revelation, but he returns to his room to find that Sonny's missing. Olaf takes the remaining siblings outside, where they find Sonny trapped in a cage suspended from the top of the tall tower. Like, literally a Tweety Bird cage. Yeah. Like those old metal cages. So, Olaf threatens to drop Sunny from the tower unless Violet goes through with the wedding play. Violet attempts to rescue her sister using a rather impressively constructed grappling hook, but her plan is quickly foiled. Now, out of books and inventions, the Baudelaire children simply wait for the play to begin. The next night, the children find themselves standing helplessly backstage as Olaf and his troupe carry out their performance of The Marvelous Marriage, which, despite being a facade created solely to secretly marry Violet, is a full three-stage act (laughs) and appears to almost exclusively feature Olaf. I do think, though, I've seen some local theater probably about that tier. Yeah, my bet is this is not great. 
No, it's not. <laughs> but, you know, I've also seen a lot of, like, high school theaters. So, you know, you, you learn to zone out. <laughs> Finally, the play reaches its climax with the marriage ceremony. And as soon as Violet signs the official marriage, Olaf turns to the audience and arrogantly reveals that the entire production was a sham. Thanks to Justice Strauss and some nauseatingly loose marriage laws, Olaf was not only Violet's legal guardian, but also her legal husband, giving him full control of her fortune. I still think this is a better play than Waiting for Godot. Uh, yeah, I know. You said some choice words to me about Waiting for Godot. I and don't like overall, it. Overall, I hear it's a pretty boring play. It's it's dumb. Come at me, theater kids. Get in here. I'll fight you on Godot. Fair. It's garbage. What did... There, oh my god, they did a play whenever I was a freshman, I think, mm-hmm. and it was the most boring thing I've ever seen, called Wig, I think. It was, it's just one person talking. It's like the oh, whole no. play is a monologue. Oh, and no. the lead the lead character, like the, the girl, that lead actress, she shaved her head for the role. In high school? I, they took themselves way too seriously. No, no, that, no that you That theater director child, no. ended up having like a mental breakdown the, at the end of the year or something like that. He did not come back. I mean. But she was like a senior. I think she was like his senior, you know, oh, the one, no. his, his pride and joy. Oh, no. Tragic. Yeah. I mean, there is a disproportionately high rate of losing it in theater teachers. Yeah. Compared to other educators. I'm just saying it like wasn't Rough. a good choice. No, no, none of that was a good choice. You don't want a high school monologue heavy play. It, I was like, is this it? Is this all it is? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I also like wasn't into like artsy stuff anyways at that time in my life. Very very generous of you to call that artsy. I I mean it kind of was. I guess I it guess was, it tried to be. Right. I mean in the same way that Waiting for Godot is. I feel like that's artsy. Yeah. It's absurdist babe. Okay. Which well, means sure. that you could just say anything and it's kooky and like oh that's the point. Is that it means nothing but then who cares? Anyways. Anyways Mr. Poe rushes onto stage to confront Olaf but after Justice Strauss reads through the marriage document she admits that the marriage was in fact completely legal. Yay. While the many adults present immediately give up on helping the obviously exploited children one voice rose up with an objection. Violet reveals that the marriage was in fact not legally binding because she didn't sign the document in her own hand. She signed the paper with her left hand when she's actually right-handed. What? Suckers. Got him. That's a legal loophole. So she used her left hand when she should not have, thereby making the marriage document null and void. The book does a really good job of mentioning Violet using her right hand, like in the beginning when they're skipping stones on the beach. Oh, it yeah. points out she was tossing rocks with the right hand, which you wouldn't point that out normally. Uh-huh. And that happens a few times in the book. It's a cool thing about it is that it rewards greater attention to the book. Right, and so yeah. for someone who's paying attention, they get several chances to learn that Violet's right-handed and they'll notice when it says she signs it with her left hand. Yep. And so they'll think, oh, that's something. And I love when authors do that, especially for young readers like that. It shows you that it's cool to pay attention and to really get engaged with the book because it can reward you and you can like see things coming and it can be really exciting. And I just love yeah. that. So Mr. Pro, Mr. Pro. <laughs> Mr. Poe tries to apprehend Olaf, but he manages to escape along with his theater troupe without even offering the audience a refund. But on the bright side, Justice Strauss offers to adopt the Baudelaire children. Yay! It's great! Happy ending! I know! And if this were a different story, they would have all gone home together that night, and Count Olaf would have been quickly apprehended, along with the rest of his ghoulish gang. The ghoul gang! Ghoul gang! Show up! 
But this isn't a different story. This is the Baudelaire story. And in this story, Mr. Poe tells the orphans that Justice Strauss cannot raise them since she's not a relative. And just like that, the Baudelaire children were left once again without a home. Well, now that we know what happened, it's time to discuss our personal proclivities from this week's chapters. And in the spirit of Lemony Snicket, we are going to discuss 13 unfortunate faves. Yes. 13's a fun number. And I don't think I, we put this in any particular order. We're just going to talk about 13 things that we enjoyed about right. this book. I do want to start, though, with the first page of the book, because I think it is one of the most perfect beginnings to a book I have ever read. It and is great. It is pure genius. It is one of those things where, God, I wish I could have written that, because <laughs> I just I find it perfect. I'm going to read it to you real quick. If you are interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. In this book, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning and very few happy things in the middle. This is because not very many happy things happened in the lives of the three Baudelaire youngsters. Violet Klaus and Sonny Baudelaire were intelligent children, and they were charming and resourceful and had pleasant facial features. But they were extremely unlucky, and most everything that happened to them was rife with misfortune, misery, and despair. I'm sorry to tell you this, but that's how the story goes. Boom, first page. That is perfect. How could you not keep reading How after that? How could you not keep reading? That is just, oh, my God. I cannot I cannot overstate how good that yeah. first page is. Like, all-time page-turner work. Yes, yes. So great. So uh, another thing that I I enjoy, I also enjoyed that first page of the book, but I, um, I also like how, like, teaches vocabulary, mm-hmm. like, on the side of the narration. They would say, yeah. like, this word, which here means blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, but my favorite one, it gave me a little giggle. He's describing the word faking, and he says, mm-hmm. faking, a word here, which means feigning. Yeah. And I'm like, I feel like it would have been the other way around. Yeah. I would know what faking was, but not what feigning was. Right. Anyways, I still, in- I loved all of them. There's so many Same. throughout the entire book. But yeah. No, I love them too. And a lot of times, they- he doesn't give you the actual definition. Right, he like embellishes it. Well, he explains... It's hard to describe, but he more, more explains how the character's using that word, mm-hmm. where someone says like said unpleasant which which here means seeing a, a soot covered house that is now your new, new home like yeah. you know it, it's just a really cute way and it's kind of a play again on like adults over explaining things to you and talking down to you because a lot of times adults will, in the story especially like mr poe will say a word and then try to define it to the children and then yeah. the children are like we know what that means right <laughs> we're smarter than you uh, but we should probably also i don't know if we've explained it or made it clear but the author lemony snicket who is not the real name of the author he's the narrator he's the narrator but he's also a character within the story so he's talking to you and he's telling you the story but he's also gives these hints that he's on this kind of almost expose journey where he is gathering this information that he's trying to tell this story and it's and at the end he has an editor's note a letter saying to his editors like hey i'm trying to investigate this and i'm looking into this character blah blah blah. and it gives you little teases into what's happening in the next book yeah it's really cool and so it's this person within the story on top of everything i just love that i agree 
And so the next one, I think you wrote this one, but uh, it's when Klaus is working his hardest to read through the law books at night. And Levy's think it describes Klaus's eyes growing tired and, quote, he found himself reading the same sentence over and over. He found himself reading the same sentence over and over. I got God. Yeah, right? It I, gets I you. I laughed out loud whenever I read that It's line. so funny. <laughs> That's what's great about this, but they're so funny. And he does stuff like that all the time. Yeah, even though they're, it's, they're miserable. Yeah. But it's still fun. But it's fun. <laughs> I also, okay, I found it very interesting that on page 87, Klaus mentions the play Macbeth out Uh-oh. loud by name. And as we, as we all know, this plot revolves around a play being performed. And the title of the Scottish play is associated with bad luck, particularly for performances. And the play did get ruined. Who's to say it's not because Klaus was talking about Macbeth? I am in... So in love with you right now, Jess. <laughs> I you didn't notice. I it. did not catch that. <laughs> I cannot believe I didn't catch that. I, this is exactly the kind of thing that I get to feel smug about and be like, oh, you know, he said that. That's <laughs> so great smug. catch. You're Thank so you. smart. I love that. Can I can I throw in a hot take time? Yeah, throw it in. I think yeah. you're gonna be mad about it. Oh. Uh, Macbeth is mid. No, no, no. I will say Hamlet. Oh no, we're gonna fight. Okay, I no, think no, Hamlet. There's, the... there's a lot of good lines in Hamlet, but as yeah. a plot, mid. Oh, you're missing the point of Hamlet. You're missing the point of Macbeth. Uh, I get Macbeth. It's just that. Eh. Macbeth is the one with where she's <laughs> like washing the blood off her hands. Yeah. That's intense. It's not He's bad. Ghosts. So does Hamlet. Hamlet sees better ghosts than Macbeth. Okay, no, we we Hamlet just, goes I'll, better I'll than say Macbeth. Something book. we both agree with. <laughs> yeah. Romeo and Juliet Number is one. less than mid. Yeah. Oh well, no, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet is an unfortunate fave, not our fave, but in that like that just became the Shakespeare play for some reason. Right. When it's it shouldn't be done at all because Juliet's twelve in it. First off, so we right. should just stop doing that show. Yeah. Unless like we go out at stage ahead and be like, she's not twelve in this version. Okay, so we're just gonna establish that. Right. She's eighteen. Then we're going to go from there. It's also just, yeah, not that good. Yeah. But there's witches in Macbeth. Oh, there Boyle are the witches. Boyle and Troil and... There are. Jazzy stuff. Oh. Ah. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's mid. All right. Well, hot, that's It's fair. a hot take, babe. But, it's I mean, a hot it's, take. Okay, I guess it's a fair take. Moving on to number five on our list. Again, no, not in any particular order, but we do <laughs> got to count 13. <laughs> yes, we do. It was very easy to get to 13. We had to cut a lot of things out. Yeah. This one just says Charles Baudelaire. I don't know what that one means. We're going to take that. I didn't. What? Did that... I write that? You wrote that. What? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I certainly did not. Oh, I think I know what it is. I wrote this very late in the game. Yeah. Okay. So, sorry. I Just kidding. So, number five is Charles Baudelaire. It's just a cool little tidbit. So, the name Baudelaire, I, which I've never heard outside of the series before, but it's actually named after a poet. Oh. Snicket does a lot of literary references throughout the book series. There, we, we didn't mention it, but the uh, dedication of the book is to a mysterious character named Beatrice, who we don't know. Mm-hmm. But Beatrice is also named after a poet, I believe. Oh. So um, so there's a lot of interesting little allusions and in, in, uh, things in there, which, you know, I just gobble that stuff up. Oh, yeah, same. Um, so number six, you actually wrote it, but it's, okay. it's about the fountain of victorious finance and, like, all the bank names. So if you go to page 62. Yeah. So the kids go see Mr. Poe. So we have the fountain of victorious finance. The, <laughs> the, they have the trustworthy bank, the faithful savings and loans bank, and then the subservient financial services division. <laughs> and I just love it because they're just hilarious names. And also I just imagine those are all rejected titles for Ayn Rand novels. <laughs> 
do you want me to do the next one as well? Yeah, I mean... Oh, okay. So the author of the play within the story, The Marvelous Marriage, is Al Funkut, which is an anagram for Count Olaf. That's something that I did not catch. Well, that was just one of those things. I was like, Al Funkut, that has to be a reference. That has to be something. That is not a name you just throw out. No, it totally makes sense. And they make a point to like say who the author is. So I think what that's supposed to be is that Count Olaf wrote this play. Right. This three-act, all-monologue, all-Olaf play. Yeah. Uh, so, number eight, the legality of the left-hand loophole is dubious at best. I and that is my not, eyes when not I heard work. that. But the, I will say that is up to a judge to decide. Right. So, yeah. So, it is like what is signing something in her own hand? What does in your own hand mean? Right. I think that's supposed to be like you have to be in like a, a you're not crazy. You you are you know what you right. were doing. Yeah. Uh, so, but it's a kid's book. It's whatever. <laughs> I do like that it's the solution is, you know, reading and critically thinking and like looking into the details and kind of lateral thinking. Right. And then uh, Olaf, it's so evil, it makes me laugh, but apparently Olaf gave the children just as a toy a pile of rocks. <laughs> I, which I, I just, just me cracks me up. Here's a pile of rocks, children. <laughs> just, it's so evil a dove. Cracks me up. Yeah. Like, cartoonishly, as yeah, you said. Yeah, it's just great. Um, and then there is the description of Olaf's eyes from page 22. It reads, His eyes were very, very shiny, which made him look both hungry and angry. Oh, I love which that. Which is I creepy. love that. That's uh, so good. And they talk about his eyes a lot. And it's like, I guess, the evil version of having a gleam in your eyes. Yeah. That Olaf always has. And I just, I like that he's hungry and angry. Just yeah. Great. I- eyes are definitely a strong motif in this. Yes. They very much are. Which I appreciate. Yeah. Because I don't know if it came up, but he has a unibrow and he has an eye tattoo on his ankle, which is becomes Pretty very important dirty, right. throughout the series. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Again, another really dark thing that I didn't appreciate until being an adult was Olaf being an alcoholic. Yeah. Like, he has wine for breakfast. Like, he literally right. says he pours a glass of wine for breakfast. He They go to his room at one point, the children, and there's just empty wine bottles scattered about. And in the books to follow, he it, it, they make more allusions to him being clearly just a drunk, which is, is very adult and very heavy, and I just love that. It's it very is. fitting. It- and that kind of reminds me something about that and also like the names of all the bank something about this just feels very british to me like i keep forgetting yes. like this is an american writer right i same. picture them in england me too uh, that's another thing this story takes place at an ambiguous time yeah it's they're very much they feel like they're in like the turn of the century Right. And it's very steampunky-esque. Yeah, I get steampunk vibes for um, sure. And yeah, they're driving around in like cars that are kind of like Model Ts. Yeah. But there's also, in a future book, there's a computer. Okay. So it, it's definitely playing with that. It's not, doesn't establish a time. I don't believe it establishes a location. I think it's no, supposed to be I like a Chicago. Whatever, yeah, your mind comes up with. But like Justice Strauss has a powdered wig. Right, know? yeah, like, yeah. And I don't know, things just seem very. It does seem very British. British in that like I get Victorian vibes. Yes, exactly. That's 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 the perfect time. It's, it's like Victorian. But I like industrial how you revolution. Said, like, steampunk. It's, yeah, it, it is. That's a good descriptor of it. Yeah, and and it's got that sarcastic kind of dry quality to it as well. For sure. So okay, on to number thirteen, and the thirteenth thing that I really liked. It's a quote referring to Violet when she's looking at uh, Count Olaf's 
feet. It says she was staring at his feet and could see the tattooed eye that had been watching the Baudelaire orphans since their troubles had begun. And that's like right before, you know, the dreaded play. Yes. Um, and I just, I really like the way that sentence was worded. I love that sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that eyes, like we said, it's a motif and everyone can go ahead and take a drink. I'm going to talk about Gatsby again. Uh, <laughs> Great Gatsby, one of the famous symbols is the eyes of T.J. Elkelberg, where it's this old advertisement that has long since abandoned these eyes looking over like this this uh, awful landscape outside of New York City. Right. And it was supposed to be like the eyes of God or whatever. And it's kind of like an inverse of that where it's just this omnipresent, you know, symbol following them. It's a literal eye. Yeah. Just, and they feel like they're under a microscope. These Like you can feel like they're being targeted almost. It's so unfortunate that so much evil happens to them. And it's just this, like the eye of Sauron is maybe a more relatable yeah, thing I could I think talk about. Yeah, more but, appropriate. But yeah, it's really cool. All right, so now that we've established our unfortunate faves, it's time to take a little trip. Ooh, where are we going on this trip? Well, it's not about where we're going. It's about what we're traveling on, and that is a little road known as the road to pretension. It's back, baby! Vroom, vroom. So Skirt, skirt. Skirt, skirt, everybody. So if you guys listen to our old podcast, Twilight, you will know that I used Road to Pretension to yell about books. So I would take a classic piece of literature and I would use it to compare to the chapters we were covering at Twilight to kind of show authorial techniques and what they were doing and how it affected the reader. And so I'm kind of doing the same thing, but I'm not going to pick another piece of literature because I was running out of books and it's very hard. Yeah. Uh, what I'm not, do- not to say you won't in the future, but... No, but for the most part, what I'm going to do is a similar thing, but I'm just going to take... Something that the author is doing, some kind of writing technique or style or reference, and explain why they're doing it and how it works and like why it makes the book really good. Right. And I promise it's going to be fun. It's going to be so it's fun. It's going to be fun. You don't even have to write anything down. So let's go ahead and take our first journey down this newly paved road to pretension as we take a deep dive. And trust me, it's going to be fun. Don't worry. Into postmodernism. Woo! Everyone's favorite topic. I mean, once you learn more about it, you'll be like, oh, I actually do like postmodernism. Right, exactly. It's, re- it's really cool and hip. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you just probably just don't recognize it for what it is. Right. Well, I'm, I'm willing to bet that a lot of people listening have at one point heard the term postmodernism, like from like a YouTube video essay or like one of your more insufferable friends, probably me, <laughs> if you know me. But even if you haven't heard the term or if you have heard the term, you may not know like what it is or like you probably couldn't explain it very well which myself included took me a long time to write this out same but don't worry dear listener the fault lies not in yourself but in your authors and their (laughs) critics as postmodernism has become sort of a catch-all term to define anything meta or self-referential or pop culture obsessed and you can use postmodernism to describe like paintings and philosophy and architecture it's kind of a messy topic but we'll be limiting to the relatively small scope of postmodern literature. So if you look it up on Wikipedia, you'll see postmodernism has the characteristics of nonlinear narratives, experimentation, parody, irony, blah, blah, blah. But what does that mean exactly? I mean, essentially, postmodern, postmodern literature is writing that is aware of the history and culture of literature and uses that knowledge to subvert or challenge readers expectations so for like a non-book example take like rick and morty or even monty python 
right. that repeatedly reference the fact that they are in a fictional story. And that's what's cool about postmodern writing is that the book and the reader get to share in their knowledge of books. And the more familiar you are with literature, the more exciting it is when someone plays with the typical structure of a story. It's like you're in on the joke. Exactly. That is a much, <laughs> you should write these. That's a much better way of explaining it. <laughs> So where did postmodern literature come from? Why did people suddenly start taking normal writing and shove it up its own butt and make it all weird and complicated? Excellent question. Well, question I'm always asking. Yeah. Why are people shoving things up their own butt? Why? Tell me. <laughs> well, you could find elements of what you would might call postmodern writing in works like, you know, as early as like Don Quixote in like the 1600s. But really the true precursor to postmodernism is, unsurprisingly... Modernism. So <laughs> who who could have come up with that one? <laughs> so there was a modernist writing movement that began in the late 1800s, but really took off in the aftermath of World War One, with authors like James Joyce, T. S. Eliot, and Virginia Woolf. I know T. S. Eliot mm -hmm. is responsible for cats. Yes. What else? The, his most famous one is The Wasteland. It's this long, epic poem. Okay, okay, I, okay that, I have heard of that. Which, actually. we own that one, so you might have seen it in the right. show or something. But I think he was, like, insane when he did the cat one. That, uh, I'm sure. Yeah, I think, like, he was, like, syphilitic. Like, he was, like, having, like, dying of syphilis that he wrote that. Uh, right. Or he was, like, high on ether or something. I may be besmirching a good man, but... But, yeah, T.S. <laughs> Eliot wrote these stories about cats that became the musical Cats. So, blame him. Yeah. So the Great War was so brutal and destructive that it traumatized an entire generation of people. Modern writers, modernist writers rather, coped with that trauma by abandoning the traditional forms of writing and tried to better the world through rationality and science, which if you are alive today, you know, did not succeed. No, because <laughs> it was so incredibly boring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They were like, who cares? <laughs> who cares? <laughs> but this is a time when a lot of inventions, a lot of science, this is when Darwin's theories were taking hold in nah. popular culture and I'm stuff. So people thought, well, right, but well, people were all of a sudden thinking, oh, we can find like a, there's universal truth. We can, there is rationality. We can solve things. Okay. But then when World War II arrived with the one-two combo of nuclear bombs and genocide, which were accomplished through that rationality and science, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, everyone kind of just threw up their hands and said, you know what? No meaning. Nothing has meaning. The nothing means anything. <laughs> the world is random and chaotic and you might as well embrace it. So like an example of the difference between modernist and postmodernist is like, for, like feminism. Modernists would be like women are the equals of men, in all ways that matter and they need to overcome their plight and their lower status by argument and working and fighting for their rights where postmodernists are like what even is gender no one's like gender doesn't even matter right all, we are assigning things but we don't even know like it's a spectrum so like what you i'm see? sensing like a slight bit of like nihilism oh it's so much nihilism. as well <laughs> oh it is all of the nihilism like modernists were nihilistic to an extent but right. then postmodernists, they said right well, all nihilism oh all of my friends just died in a trench right now yeah <laughs> nothing matters wow cool <laughs> um so their feet are rotting off <laughs> awesome well we systematically erased almost erased an entire culture Using cool new chemicals. Oh. Extra great. Anyways, I'm going to go 
I'm going to go eat a bunch of meth chocolate. Yeah, do something that won't matter in the grand scheme of things. I'm going to take some sleeping pills that are going to give my baby, like, three heads. Dear God. It's all bad. But, so... Take home the point is that some of the first great postmodernist novels came out of World War II, like Catch-22 and uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, which mm-hmm. both are books that kind of came out as a way to understand and contextualize the trauma that the authors experienced in the war. Fair. The joke in Catch-22, where we get that phrase, is it revolves around the story of a World War II pilot, a bomber pilot, who tries to claim that he's crazy so he can't go on flights anymore. But the fact that he knows that he shouldn't be going on these flights, that they're dangerous, means that he's sane so that he can't be ruled insane and not go on this flight. Well, so that's Catch-22. And so funny fact about that book, I was reading up about it, and so originally it was supposed to be Catch-11, Awful. That's but, a terrible But name. there's another book that came out with Word 11 in it about Thank World God. War II, and they cut it. And then it was going to be Catch 19. 19 is my favorite number. 19 is my favorite number. But Catch 19 is awful. Mm. Catch 22, perfect. It's good. So anyways, postmodern writing continued from there, because um, also there's the beat movement. There's a lot of things going on with this, but mostly just what I said. Don't worry about it. Uh, postmodern writing continued from there and became more refined and expanded upon with authors like Thomas Pynchon, Zadie Smith, uh, probably most intensely with, <laughs> I keep wanting to say Dallas-Fort Worth. I see DFW, <laughs> yeah. and I was if you were going to say that out loud, I would have been like, Dallas-Fort Worth? Yeah. I only just now realized that means David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace, who is the author <laughs> of The Infinite Jest. Uh, and so postmodernism just became increasingly more convoluted and sufferable with each generation. Essentially, postmodernism looks to blur the lines between fiction and reality, and I think few books do it better and with as much style as a series of unfortunate events. Like, I really mean that. It's like, baby's first postmodernism. It, it, it really is baby's first postmodernism, <laughs> but it's also, like, really well done. No, it's just, it is. Like, the perfect example of it. And so look no further than, further than the book's author, Lemony Snicket, who is not only a pseudonym or a pen name, but he's a character within the story. The author uses the Snicket character to reach out directly to his audience, often to dissuade them from reading the book at all. And, of course, as we learned from Tipper Gore and her parental warning stickers, that only (laughs) makes you want to read it more. (laughs) Excellent reference to Tipper Gore. Always take the opportunity to rip on tip. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says, let's rip on tip. But that might... You know who might probably like that? Hmm. Um... That guy from Twisted. D. Snyder? Yeah. Great reference. But... Thank you. Like, just think. You're a kid. You're a middle schooler, probably. There. And you grew up with, like, Harry Potter, Percy Jackson. Uh, middle school, I was a Percy Jackson gal. I believe it. And like, Or, like, the Magic Treehouse. Or, like, these serial books. Or, like, mm, Babysitter's Club or something I was definitely like that. Babysitter's Club. Right. As the genders have dictated. That's what you had to read. I think I did read a couple boxcar children. Oh, how, what exciting life you lived. I think I was very old when I was a child, though. You were very old when you were a child? No. Oh, it was very old when you were... I got you. I'm not sure when that came out. But you're reading those normal books, the serial books for children, which and they're great, but, you know, they follow, like, a standard formula. Then you open up a series of unfortunate events, and you read that first page that I read to you guys earlier, and not only is the author speaking directly to you, but he's actively trying to stop you from reading. That is some mind-blowing stuff right there. It's so clever. It's so perfect, because... When you're a kid, the thing you want more than anything in the world is to be taken seriously. And now here's a book where the author is talking to you. He's telling you that you shouldn't keep reading, but he also doesn't stop you. He trusts you to make your own decision. 
And at a time when you have so little control of your life, that is an incredibly empowering idea. That's beautiful. It's so perfect. Mm -hmm. It's so great. One of the major themes in these books is that these kids are not being taken seriously and given like advocacy in any way. And then this book actively is giving the reader that when the characters are. It's perfect. It is. It's great. And and so even though he's breaking the fourth wall, the Snicket character makes the story, I think, more real in a way. Like it, it gives the story like this like journalistic expose kind of vibe, like the same... Like, same with the book's dedication to uh, the unknown woman Beatrice, who mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, which mm-hmm. adds both depth and mystery to the Snicket character. And as does the editor's notes uh, featured in the back of the book, which are given his editor instructions on how to get to the next manuscript. And so these extra layers of storytelling make the world of a series of unfortunate events feel more real, th- again, than like a straightforward series like Harry Potter, which has clearly made up things like wands or dragons or London. Right. But postmodernism isn't just about weighty, pretentious ideas like meta narratives. Handler also uses postmodern style for fun. Like the gags we mentioned earlier of repeating the same line in the book when Klaus is rereading the same line in, in the book he's reading. <laughs> or the constant reference to a word which here means and then he like doesn't actually define it correctly or like accurately. You know, it's yeah. just it's so good. It's these little subversive techniques that come out of this kind of absurdist idea that the postmodern movement started. And so that's why I chose it as my first topic, because I think a series of unfortunate events most iconic and best feature. The fourth wall breaking, the absurdist, almost sarcastic tone are what make the series unique and why so many people fell in love with it. Just for example, the dozen articles I read for this piece that all opened with some play on the article you're about to read is extremely unpleasant, which we also did with our intro. I mean, are we, are we going to not? Yeah, because <laughs> that's how iconic and like funny it is and so yeah. perfect. It, it's all, all the typical formalities of books are upended from the dictation and the author's bio to the introduction and the editor's notes at the end. And, you know, postmodernism is... You know, a big clunky name for a kind of a big clunky idea. But at its core, postmodernism is about playing around with the rules because the rules are made up anyway. It's about finding comedy in the chaos of the universe. And that's why I love a series of unfortunate events. And that's why we're so excited we get to start a new podcast with it. With everything going on in the world, I think the best thing we can do is embrace the weird. Heck yeah. Yeah. So everyone go out and buy a copy of Gravity's Rainbow or Infinite Jest. Or, you know, uh, borrow it from the library. Or read the series we're talking about, I guess, would probably be a good recommendation. Hey, you know what? Do what you want, because in the end, it doesn't really matter. Exactly. Was that very postmodernism of me? I was sad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's enough for me. So why don't we exit off this road to pretension and pull up into the YA information station where just use her advanced librarian skills to give us some insights into the story and the wider world of ya. Ya! That's what I think every time I see why I read YA. I think of that kid. Ya! Ya! All right, y'all. Hey. Hi. Um, so I'm back. This is my little information station here. And I've decided to give y'all a little info on Lemony Snicket's creator, Daniel Handler. So uh, this is taken from a couple of interviews, one being the NPR interview that he did. And then the other one is from the Master's Review. Ooh. It kind of gives you a little insight into why why Daniel Handler made the decisions he did to like create the book with all these distinct features. Right. So we're kind of looking behind these features. 
So he's originally from San Francisco, born in 1970. Um, He began writing shortly after graduating college. And when writing for his first book, The Basic Eight, he came up with the name Lemony Snicket. All-time great name. I know. But he said he came up with it on the spot as a way to like sign up for information because he was doing research and he needed information from uh, white right-wing political organizations and religious (laughs) groups as like part of the research for that Mm -hmm. book but he didn't want to give them his real information right so he just came up with a name um (laughs) and like his friends loved it it was an inside joke that every time they would like go out to eat or order food or do whatever they'd play a joke and it'd just be lemony snicket they would use that name i love that so much i know um and so eventually fomo for that group of friends i know (laughs) So eventually, he decided to use that name in the series of unfortunate events. So uh, one thing that I I didn't have written down, but I was reminded of earlier, the whole, like, marriage. 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 Which, funnily enough, series of unfortunate events was actually banned in Decatur, Georgia. uh, Not due to, like, anything but the incest implications why did they have the same laws <laughs> i don't know but it's they really didn't want to be funny called out? well because in, in an interview uh handler mentioned that and he's like i mean it's kind of ironic basically coming georgia. from like georgia or the joke about georgia and all well it's more well, of an it's alabama, more alabama joke, but, but still like the south u.s south being like all incestuous yeah. anyways thought that was funny but um he, he originally he didn't really write it for a young adult yeah people i, I imagine yeah. um but then he looked at it and he realized that actually no all of these elements work better with young children uh, because like if you're talking about adults where she's being forced to marry like her mm-hmm. uh a family member like you think of like the sexual assault implications and things like that however when you're a child you're just like ew i have to marry this gross man like it's not yeah the most they ever kind of get at that angle is that violet revolts at the idea of like waking up next to him every day but it's not really implied that that she understands it to be sexual or that even olaf is treating it that way exactly clear that he's trying to get their fortune but yeah but he's like this works much better as in like that a child's point of view right it's great choice yeah which i i agree Mm -hmm. i totally agree okay we talked about his warnings at the beginning of the book and this came about when daniel handler began writing this book he didn't know much about youth literature only like what he remembered from the books he read as a child were that they were overly didactic and like had this quote overwhelmingly moralistic tone Mm -hmm. to it and so he decided to mock that aspect which Mm -hmm. Perfect. There again, that makes it postmodernism. Exactly. And so then as far as like why all the misery present in this whole series, apparently, is that he just simply what he finds to be interesting in a plot. He's like, yeah. in order for a plot to be interesting, bad things have to happen. And so he just really leaned into that because he's like, well, that's what I want to read about. So that's what I'm going to write about. I mean, more proud to you. Yeah. Okay, so another distinct quality, right? The word descriptions. He, again, it's not something that he wanted to make like overtly didactic. He didn't sit down and think, this, what are the children going to learn today? Right, right. He kind of just wrote it how he wanted to. And when there was a big word, he explained it. So, I mean, it works. I mean, yeah, I think it works perfectly because you're not, I feel like it's it's adding more to the story instead of like having to take that take away a good sentence just because they don't know what it means. We'll just tell them what it means. Yeah, and, and it, yeah, like you said, it's not overly didactic. It's not explaining it to you because the, the definitions it gets are not like 
dictionary definitions. It's like right. it's a jokey way of explaining it, and yeah. and often and it's not always like really complicated words. He does it with like pretty obvious words. Yeah, too. sometimes too. Yeah, I think he makes it yeah. in there. Great way to explain things without talking down to someone. Yes, exactly. Speaking of talking down to someone, he talks about how he, as a child, always had a sense that the world uh, was like out of his control. And that adults made the decision and and said adults were like not likely to listen to what you had to say. Like he says he remembers that feeling very distinctly and vividly. Um, And so whenever I think he decided to write a children's novel, he put that in there, which I think is brilliant. It's one of the it's one of the great aspects of it is you can see yourself. Yeah, you're getting at that frustration you feel as a kid. Exactly. And so, yeah, so th- so that just, um, I wanted to wrap up, give you a little extra information about uh, why we have these distinct qualities in, he- in his books. Mm-hmm. And so that's it for my information station today. All right. Well, that's fantastic. And I think that's it. First episode back. Yeah. It feels good. It feels, it feels good. really good, y'all. I'm sweaty. We're both sweaty. I'm We're drenched. excited. We're foaming at the mouth. Mm. We, we have tetanus. <laughs> very excited for you guys to be here if you have any questions or want to say hi you can find us on all the social medias at nsya pod and then you can also email us at nsya at gmail.com yeah that's it all right that's that that's all we have next week we will be back with the next next episode we'll be back with but you'll never guess the second book in oh the series gosh. of fortunate series what is that one called it's called the reptile room i'm actually very excited for the reptile room i I'm a herb lover. As am I, and it's one of my favorites in the series. And highly recommend you guys read along with us. They're very easy reads. They're very fun, easy reads. It is for children. It is for children. So they're also great audiobooks. Yeah. So if you yeah. can get the Libby app, yes. which is basically you get a library for audiobooks, and you can check out this series and a bunch of others for free. But yeah, go to your local library, check out these books. Uh, we highly recommend you read them. They're really fun. If you know us, you can borrow them from us. Yeah. Hit so me up. So find us, and we'll <laughs> give you a book. I promise, I'm promise. i promising our listeners right now, if you find our home, wherever it is, because we don't even know where our home's going to be soon, <laughs> I will give you a book. <sighs> All right. All right. Well, till next time. Bye. Bye. Good. Feels great. You should probably put pants on, huh? Yeah. Yeah.